We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor, we be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. In Christ, then, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're out today. Um, I want to zero in this morning for our sermon on uh, verse 20 of Galatians 2, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It's clear here that Paul is identifying with the crucifixion. He's identifying with the cross on some, uh, the cross of Jesus in some deep way. So much so that he defines his own life in terms of the crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ. That's an interesting thing to say. Paul's still alive, right? I think most people who write letters are alive. It's kind of hard to write one if you're dead. So he's alive, and yet he says, I have been crucified. So it's a way of saying I, I'm, I'm completely in. I, I've bought in completely to the logic and the power and the purpose of the cross of Jesus. It now defines my life after meeting the resurrected, crucified but resurrected Christ on the road of Damascus, road to Damascus, Paul is all in. His life is now, his identity is now bound up in the cross. And in the first century world, I don't think we could overstate how bizarre uh, it would be to, to make a claim like that um, with a straight face. Cicero famously called crucifixion a cruel, disgusting punishment. Cicero, a Roman orator, he said, quote, that the very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but also from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. And here is Paul, who is a Roman citizen, right, defining his very life by a crucifixion, by a cross, why? I mean, how is it that that could come about? Well, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is what changed what a crucifixion symbolized and signified in the mind of somebody like Paul, a follower of Jesus. Now, in one sense, Jesus' crucifixion is not any different from anybody else's. The Romans crucified tens of, of thousands of people, sometimes several thousand at once, right, to make a statement. It was basically a statement that Caesar's in control, and you will not be bucking the authority of Caesar, even if you claim to be a Messiah or some sort of, uh, you know, uh, well-intentioned, uh, you know, agent of change. Caesar will 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 uh, show you otherwise. Jesus' is, is crucifixion is is like everybody else's in the sense that he's he's tortured, he's humiliated. It's supposed to be a way of executing somebody that humiliates them. 
There's other ways they killed people who they weren't trying to humiliate. So he's tortured, he's humiliated, and he's hung on a cross, nailed to a cross, to hang there until he dies by asphyxiation. So that's not really any different. But there's another sense in which the cross of Christ is radically different. And it's basically that Jesus was not forced to go to the cross. In John chapter 10, um, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. So here is a man who surrendered to the cross. He wasn't overcome and nailed to a cross against his will. He voluntary, voluntarily surrendered to the cross. And it's that surrender, the spirit of surrender, the logic of surrender, that I want to focus with us on for a few minutes this morning. This is the thing that Paul is talking about when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about the power of surrender. The power of surrender. And we're going to make three points, basically. We're going to talk about the significance of surrender, the shape of surrender, and the secret to surrender. All right? We ready to roll? Let's talk about the significance of surrender. Why is surrender important? Um, how crucial is this? Well, according to Paul... The surrender that is the willing crucifixion of Jesus or one of us who are trying to emulate his, his way, his path, his choice, is, is now nothing less than life itself. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice the rest of the language here. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life is different, fundamentally, at the core. My identity, the path I'm taking, uh, how I define myself, the life I now live, he says, is lived in light of the crucifixion of Jesus. This willing, willingness to give oneself up, to die to self, is now his new life. It's not something on the periphery of his life. It's not something he does when he's feeling especially devoted or religious or pious. This is Paul now. You see the difference? Its significance is that it is life for a Christian, for Paul and for all who would, would uh, follow in the, in the way of Jesus. And we see this all over the other writings of Paul. And there are many of those, of course, in the New Testament. Uh, you know, he wrote the biggest part of the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're still alive, but there's another sense in which you've been sacrificed. You're dead. Part of you, the whole old you, is sacrificed, though you're a living sacrifice. And he says, notice this, that's your worship. We so often think of worship as what goes on inside here, don't we? What about the worship time? It, this is worship, no question. But do you realize that the New Testament is almost totally about other stuff? What percentage of your New Testament is talking about what goes on in an assembly for worship? It, not very much. It's probably single digit if you added up the verses and did, did the math. The vast majority is talking about what you do 24-7. And that's what this verse is saying. I mean, we could turn to passages that talk about an assembly for worship, you know, in 1 Corinthians 11 or something like that. But there's going to be a lot more of this where you being sacrificed to yourself 
having surrendered to the Lord, is your worship. And that's something you do when you're paying your bills, when you're raising your kids, when you're playing sports, when you're interacting with friends, when you're talking to people out in the public square, or whatever. That, that, this is a way of life. You see the, the, the point? It's, it's pervasive. And it's no wonder that Paul uh, is talking about sacrificing ourselves or surrendering ourselves because he's a follower of Jesus, and this is all over the teachings of Jesus. I'll just give you one, remind you that Jesus said, if anyone, Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. Deny self and take up his cross and follow me. Does that sound like things people are saying today? I'll tell you what the answer is. You need to be devoted to self-abnegation. Nobody's saying that. <laughs> There's a whole lot of people concerned about rights and uh, you know, people marginalized and people hurting and all that, and they should be biblically. But nobody is, is, this is not the path. This isn't the MO for anybody I'm hearing. No, it's the same old, same old, just dedicated to something better. He says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. It's a way of life. It's not something you do on Sundays. It's daily. And follow me. That, that is the essence of following Jesus. And, and this is something not only that Jesus taught, it's something Jesus did. Remember John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want you to notice a connection here. God's love is seen in what? For God, what did love mean? Giving. Giving what? Himself, His Son. What's more ultimate than that? He didn't give us a thing or two. I mean, Romans 8 argues that if He's given us His Son, won't He give us everything else we need? He will give us a thing or two or 500, right? But the main thing that proves He loves us is that He gave, and He gave sacrificially. He gave His only Son. We can't claim to be people who love if we're not willing to give up things. That's what love is. That's, that's the love of God is what we're to emulate. We love because He first loved us, which is our motto for the year, right? Our saying, um, our, our sort of rallying cry, our vision statement for the year. But love means giving up. And ultimately it means giving up yourself. Surrender is what love means. Um, and, and that's really the point I'm trying to make here. Love is surrender. Surrender is love. So we're not talking about something odd or weird or strange or out on the edges of Christianity. We're talking about sort of the core of it. Surrender is the ethic of Christianity because it's love. All right? And we see this in what Paul writes in his, uh, his description of love, that beautiful description in 1 Corinthians 13. One of the statements made there is this. Love does not insist on its own way. A person who's committed to love isn't always going around talking about their interests and their rights and how they're being treated. They're focused on the other. That's what it is. That's what love is. It does not. Elementally, fundamentally, love does not insist on its own way. And I think that's why 1 John, in all the verses around 1 John 4, uh, 19, that we're focusing on thematically for the, for the 2019 year, uh, 1 John talks a lot about you know, things like giving up our stuff, our own stuff. Maybe that, that we earned. I earned it. I worked hard for it. You didn't. But 1 John would call us as Christians to be willing to part with that for people in need. Because 1 John teaches us that giving up of self for others is the essence of love, and without love, we don't have God, because God is love. Uh, an example would be 1 John 3, 16 and 17. By this we know love, 
that he, God, laid down his life for us. They're just giving again, surrendering. And we ought to lay down or surrender our lives for our brothers. And then he makes it a little more concrete in verse 17. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, has no compassion toward him, right? How does God's love abide in him? Because that's, that's who God is. So in short, why is surrender significant? How is it significant or important? Well, if God's essence is love, God is love, 1 John says, and love is essentially self-surrender, then you tell me without surrender, how do we have God? How are we like God? How are we connected to God? That's who God is. And that's pretty, um, in my view, for me personally, that's pretty, um, a pretty arresting thought. Uh, it, 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 you know, it can be alarming because I don't know that I'm always living like that. Now, let's, I want to look more closely at where the rubber meets the road. So let's talk secondly about the shape of surrender. The shape of surrender. And what I mean by this is what, precisely what, what does it look like? What does surrender look like in practice? We've gone sort of from the vague and uh, theoretical. I want to get down now to sort of concrete you know, application, at least a few of those. So think about your interactions. We all interact with people, right, daily. Uh, there may be close interactions in a family uh, setting. They may be uh, something at work, a little, a little more distant, but still pretty close. You're going to know those people fairly well, or a, a classmate or something like that, maybe a, a teammate. And then there's the people we meet, you know, we interact with daily as clerks and driving and um, you know, voting and, and just whatever else. There, there's, our, our life is consumed basically by relationships and interactions. So in the way that we relate to other people, the way that we connect with other people, or don't connect with other people, what, does, what, do, what would surrender look like in those practical, everyday, relational contexts? And the short answer, if we're asking the question, what is the precise shape of surrender? The short answer is something we've talked about here um, at, at, at some length. This is not a new concept. The shape of surrender is cruciform. It's cross-shaped is what cruciform means. That's what surrender looks like. It looks like one who didn't have to, deciding to, allow himself to be killed on behalf of other people, giving up or surrendering self. So, um, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the shape of it. Surrender is a cruciform or cross-shaped way of living, way of interacting, way of relating to people and ideas and my time and my money and my possessions. I, I'm in a world, right? There's a world I'm a part of. And I'm going to make a million decisions, you know, over the course of, of my life, probably hundreds in a week. How much do those look like the cross is the question. So I want us to get this. Following Jesus means much more than relating to others in the same old, uh, you know, self-assertive way of the world. That's the way the world operates. You need something, your rights aren't being met, you're not getting the things you need, your interests aren't being listened to, you don't have a voice, so what do you do? You assert yourself. And nowadays you may, well, throughout history many, you may find a bunch of people who have the same problem you do and you get together and you assert yourself. That's been going on for a long time. 
That's kind of our, our typical MO. That's the way of the world. This is what Eve does. Remember what Satan says to Eve, the serpent says to Eve? Why do you have this rule that you're, you shouldn't be forbidden to do that? You should self-actualize. You should find fulfillment. Who is he to... God's just trying to keep you down. He doesn't really have your best interest at heart. Here's another take, Eve. You can be like God. All right? So, this is, I'm inviting you, inviting us, inviting myself to, to go beyond just uh, living a, a life that is the same old, you know, committed to the same old kind of self-assertiveness, and we just slap the label Christian on it and go to church. It's not Christian if it's not cruciform, if it doesn't have surrender uh, of self at its heart. Um, so our lives take on a whole new shape. In every relationship, in every connection, in every interaction, uh, cruciformity becomes the norm. And without surrender, um, I want to tell you something, people aren't going to get what they're, they're searching for anyway. We think, well, the surrender, that doesn't make any sense. I, I, I need to go for it. I need to... I long for, you know, these things or, or, or uh, fulfillment or, you know, connection and genuine relationship. And so I need, to, I need to get that. Let me tell you how you don't get it. By both parties in the relationship or in a community, everybody self-asserting. That's how you don't get it. So let's talk about this in some of these relationships that we're all in involved in. So talk about families. Think about husbands and wives. Here's what Paul says to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says in Ephesians 4.22 that wives are to submit to their own husbands. And if it isn't clear enough, he says, as to the Lord. Right? And then he says, in case husbands think, oh, sweet. He turns on them and actually spends a lot more verses on them. And he says, husbands, love your wives well, okay, that's good. She's got to submit to me. I have to love her. Awesome. Hold up. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and he elaborates on that one. So who's not submissive in this picture? Who is not um, surrendering their own interests and desires and needs and putting the, first, the other persons ahead? Both of them are. It's just two different ways of saying it. A wife is to submit to her husband as if it's to Jesus the husband's to love her, his wife selflessly and sacrificially in the same way that Jesus left the splendor and ease, no doubt, of heaven to come live as a poor person and die the death of a criminal and a reprobate, a crucifixion. That's submissive too. In fact, the whole heading for the whole section here in Ephesians 4 is this verse, chapter 4, verse 21. Backing up in verse 20, actually, Paul says that we're to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So gratitude toward Jesus and what He did. And then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, it is the model and the pattern and gratitude for Christ's surrender that leads a husband and a wife both to surrender to each other. We surrender because He surrendered. That's in a marital relationship. And, and as parents, we should be teaching our, our, our children. We should be training our children that surrendering self, that's our way. That's, that's who we are because it's Jesus' way. Right? Think about that. There's cosmic import to all those millions of decisions we make while we're rearing our little children and bigger children. 
if we're sending a signal that the world rotates around you, you need to get what's yours. It's pretty much turning the cross the wrong side up. This is, that's a rejection of cruciformity, of surrender. That's not the way Jesus operated. It's not the way he wants us to think or live. So let's talk about churches. What about our relationships inside a church, beyond our, our immediate families to our church family? Well, the text that comes to my mind most readily is Philippians 2, where Paul says, in a church context, let each of you, not necessarily a symbol church, though it probably include that, just any kind of way that we relate to each other. We relate to each other lots of ways in this church family, not just at church, you know, hanging out together, talking together, emailing each other, uh, playing sports together, you know, whatever it is. Let each of you, he says, though, look not to, the only is actually not in the text, by the way, which makes us even a little stronger. Literally, it's look each of you not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. So his surrender, your surrender. They're just, that's what Paul's saying. Let the logic flow through your life. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember, the cross symbolizes you are the lowest life form. He chose that one, that way to go out, for a reason, to identify with the most marginalized, the most voiceless and hopeless. But his way of doing it was to die. It wasn't to come in and, and start kicking people around. It was to accept being kicked around. Isn't that weird and counterintuitive? Surrender. You start a movement tomorrow to get everybody to surrender things. See how many people sign up, right? It, it's, it's exceedingly counterintuitive. But in our relationship with the larger culture, this applies as well. Surrender isn't just something that we should be doing in our homes and teaching our children and practicing husband to wife and wife to husband. It's not just something we should be doing in our relationships with each other as we look to the interests of others, not just ourselves. Try to see, empathize with the view of somebody else and their take, not just your own, right? Try hard to do that. It also applies to the way we as Christians, people who are of His church, relate to the larger culture and society, much of which is non-Christian and always has been. Newsflash. To the folks who are so worried in our culture war times <clears throat> that the culture is becoming unchristian, it's never been Christian. Not cruciform. Not when you've got evangelical Christians, quote-unquote, in the 1830s and 40s and 50s, selling people's babies away from them down the river and going to church and being all pious. Violating passages of the Old Testament up one side down the other. Find me a time when Christian culture didn't look a lot like the regular culture around it with a cross on it as an emblem or the word Christian slapped on it. We, we, why, why are we called out? What are we called out from if the culture is supposed to be just like we are? That's the whole point of being an ecclesia, a called out group. We're different. We're, we're lights in a dark world, right? We're salt in a world that, that's it's putrefying and is tasteless. And so we need to be careful, folks. We need to stand up for the Lord. But what standing up for the Lord often looks like is getting up on a cross. It looks like serving people. It looks like surrender. 
It doesn't look like conquest, or at least conquering in Jesus' name is a different kind of conquering. It's not just the same old power over. And so we have to be careful because many Christians in these times of culture war end up adopting in the name of Jesus the same sorts of coercive, power-grabbing, vengeful methods and manners as the world. They just do it in the name of Christ. So if somebody sends some anti-Christian Facebook rant, well, you can be sure to see 50 Christian Facebook rants in the name of Jesus that are very unlike Jesus in their tone. You, You can be certain. Mark it down, right? Watch the news. Some of the things that are being claimed to be Christian look very much like the power-hungry, you hurt me, I'm hurting you, you know, tit for tat. They just look like the world's, it looks like self-assertion all over again. It's really ironic to do things in the name of the cross of Jesus that look the opposite of the cross of Jesus. They don't look like surrender. Let me share with you a quote from a Scottish scholar I like called Richard Baucom in a little essay called Reading Scripture, A Coherent Story. He's talking here about the overarching narrative of the Bible, and particularly in this paragraph, talking about how in Daniel and Revelation, uh, the people of God don't take up arms to fight back uh, against Babylon or Rome in the way, the manner that Babylon and Rome run things. Remember in Revelation it says, the faithful are those who uh, um, do not love their lives even to death. They're willing to die. They just follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That, that's, those two phrases are repeated all over Revelation. That's what he's talking about here. He says, the visions of Daniel and Revelation empower nonviolent resistance to oppression. They still speak the truth, but they're not taking up the same M.O. of just, well, you know what? We'll get bigger swords and more tanks then in the name of Jesus. Now, that's happened a million times since then in the name of Christianity. Crusades, uh, wiping out Native Americans in America, and then literally in the name of Jesus. There's many examples of that and so on. There's just too many to even count. But that's not Jesus. That's a distortion of Jesus in the name of Jesus. And it's the same old rejection of surrender that the world thinks is logical. So here's what he says. The visions of Daniel and Revelation empower nonviolent resistance to oppression. They suggest not that the kingdom of God is merely a more powerful or more successful version of the imperial powers, but the kingdom of God is an altogether different kind of rule. The tragic irony of Christian history has been that so often Christian empires have taken over the symbol of the kingdom of God to justify the same kind of rule as that of the empires it was forwarded to oppose. The biblical story is a story of God's repeated choice of the dominated and the wretched, the powerless and the marginal. It also, and here's the key point, folks, listen to this. The biblical story also breaks the cycle by which the oppressed become the oppressors in their turn. That's basically human history. One group's oppressing another for years, and they finally get the power, and they guess what they do? They're going to oppress you back for the next six generations. And then they finally get the power, and they turn it on, you're going to oppress you, and it's just Hatfield and McCoy on a geopolitical stage forever. And God's probably going, not only is this really sad, can y'all get some new material? My goodness, and you think it's going to work this time? Why, why would it work now? You know? And here is Jesus who steps in in this corner, you know, of the, of the Roman Empire. A baby born to peasants who grows up and starts teaching this counterintuitive thing that surrender is actually the way. He breaks the cycle by which the oppressed become the oppressors in their turn. The cross is the event in which the cycle is definitively broken. Distortion of the biblical story into an ideology of oppression 
has to suppress the biblical meaning of the cross of surrender. And I just can heartily amen that little passage from this writer. I, I think you see this all through the Bible. In, from Paul's own pen, and we'll move on, Romans chapter 12, look what he says. This is the passage we started with a few minutes ago, but I want to read some of the applications Paul makes down later in the chapter, Romans 12. So in verses 1 and 2, if you recall, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You, you sacrifice yourselves. That's your worship. Then in verse 2, he understands that's not the way the world works, then or now. People don't find that logical. It's very bizarre. You think that sounds naive or idealistic, right? But he says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. Now, I understand I'm asking you to, to be a completely different creature than the way the world works. All right, then he starts applying that to all sorts of things, and I've plucked out a few of them from down later in the chapter. But look at verse 14. Think about how we engage our culture, how Christians are to react to a culture which is not very uh, Christian. Um, okay, fine. That's kind of starting point. That was the New Testament. That's now. That's not really weird. I don't know why we start thinking that's weird. Look what he says, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Here's what a transformed rather than a conformed view looks like. Here's what living sacrifices do. When somebody persecutes them and says, what's happening to our culture? They don't do the same thing back. They bless them. They bless them. The more you persecute me, the more I'm going to bless you. Is that what he says? Read on, verse 18. If possible, Christians, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, you can't always, if somebody's dragging you out of your house and putting you in a prison or a dungeon or in a lion's den, you can't do much about that. Pray. But as far as it depends on you, you shouldn't be, you know, bowed up, just twitching for a fight in the name of Jesus. No, that's the opposite of what he's saying. And then he says, just if it's not clear enough, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He, he is watching this. He's going to do something about it. He's inaugurated the solution with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they'll get theirs. But that's not, we're not God. Vengeance is mine, I will replace, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy, you ever feel like you have enemies in our culture, in our society? If they're hungry, feed them. Even if they're starving you, you feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what the cross is. They're taunting him, they're torturing him, they're belittling him, making fun of him, killing him. And the whole time, even his own countrymen are saying, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. He saved others himself he cannot save. Can you imagine how tempting that was? He doesn't call the angels who could have wiped those people out with a breath from heaven. Instead, he persists in his self-surrender because he knew that's what's going to change the world and bring hope finally. All right, so this is hard. I want to talk finally about the secret to surrender. We need some resources, don't we? Psychologically, emotionally. Does this sound easy to anybody? Does it sound weird to anybody a little bit? You can say it doesn't. I know you're not supposed to say it in church. Oh, Jesus' word's weird. You're going to act like it's weird on Tuesday when you don't do this, right? I'm, I'm going to do that probably. I mean, if, any, if the past of Monty Hampton's any indication, I'm going to forget this stuff in the heat of the moment. 
let's don't do that. Where does the ability to surrender come from? Well, obviously, self-surrender is not an ethical principle that seems logical. It's not in vogue. It's never been in vogue. It doesn't even seem safe to a lot of people. Truth be told, uh, there's a common sentiment out there that assumes that this actually enables abusers. You don't want to surrender because then you're enabling the abuser. Here's what the Bible does that's kind of dif different, or actually radically different. It neither condones the abuse, the injustice, the marginalization, the trampling on people. It's not deaf to the cries of those who are being abused and, are, and, who, and who are in need. But neither does it adopt the methods to redress that, the methods to solve that, that are the typical methods the world uses, which is the same method as the oppressor. It's just to flip it on its head and now I oppress you. you get, you're getting your just desserts. I'm going to assert myself finally. The Bible's different from either of those options. And I want to tell you something. The alternative to surrender if I could say to self-surrender is self-assertion, for lack of a better term, just sort of a vague catch-all term. Would you say that's had a pretty long run? Have, have we given the old college try to self-assertion as an MO? Pretty good trial, period, all of human history. It's had a pretty good run, I'd say. Literally all of human history has been that. And it really hadn't gotten us anywhere, has it? After millennia of trying this approach, self-assertion, we still don't have a world characterized by harmony and love. We don't have families where everybody is, 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 is whole and, and being fulfilled and feel, feeling like they have real, real relationships, you know, close connections, intimacy, things like that. This is not common. Grasping for power demanding what I'm owed, demanding what's my right, rather than embracing surrender. You know what, I want to tell you something, that, that gives us a good feeling. It gives us a sense of having some control. It gives us what we might call autonomy. You know, agency. But it doesn't result in the relationships and the genuine connection that all of us crave. We're, we're wired for that. And I realize some of us are more extroverted, some of us are more introverted. But at the end of the day, all of us crave, we long for connection, real relationship. Think about the prodigal son for a minute. Talking about autonomy. Autonomy literally means self-rule, right? You, you got control, you got agency, a common thing to hear today. And usually I agree with the goals of the people talking about it because they're trying to get, be a voice for the marginalized and those who are abused. I get that. You know, racism and uh, sexism and ethnocentrism and classism and all these things where you like broad brush a whole people you don't have you can't do this because of this you know out in our society and a lot of that is pretty vile um, and it needs to be addressed so I'm usually very uh, you know sympathetic toward the goal but if the method is the same old same old then how is that Christian how is that cruciform how is that surrender so think of the prodigal son. Here's a guy who wanted autonomy, right? He goes to his father and he basically says to him, I, you're not dying fast enough, I'd like my inheritance. Breaks the father's heart. He takes off, spends his father's inheritance on riotous, profligate, wild living. 
prostitutes, who knows what all. He's free. He's got autonomy. You remember what he says when he came to himself? Came to himself. That's interesting. Realize what his true identity is. He was sort of divided, and now he's coming. It's being reintegrated psychologically inside. He's coming to himself. And what does he say? I want to go back to my father's house and be like one of his servants. Autonomy wasn't what it was cracked up to be. He, he really wasn't fulfilled by having autonomy. What he really needed was relationship. And it's autonomy, this sort of shimmera of autonomy, that's going to be your, and that's such a watchword of the modern West. If we just give individuals autonomy, everything will be fine. Really, have we proven that since 1776? No, you give people free, freedom to be the same old sinner they always were. And sometimes you take the, the, the brakes off. You just wreck the car faster. No restraints. I'm not saying the restraints are the answer. The, the real answer comes from your own heart. When your heart's lined up with Jesus. But when that's the case, we embrace surrender. We're not ultimately designed for autonomy. Let me suggest that to you. Let me suggest to you that in one sense, autonomy is the quintessence of what the Bible would call sin. Isn't that what Eve was offered? That's the elemental sin. You can be like God. You don't have to be under another person in this hierarchy with God. You can be God. And written in slightly different verbiage, that kind of sounds like the, the, the myth, the worldview of the modern West since the Enlightenment. You can captain your own ship, life, liberty, you pursue your happiness, maybe different from somebody else. Humans have the capacity to figure out their own way. When Jeremiah says that it's fundamentally wrong, <laughs> Jeremiah and lots of other places, it's not within man that walks to direct his own footsteps. So there you go. That's the starting point, right? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. That's your starting point. There's your kid. Now go for it, <laughs> right? That's what the Bible says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. First words in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, if you recognize how poor you are spiritually, how impoverished you are spiritually, you don't have any answers, now we can do something with you. That's the starting point. That's the axiom the Bible works with. Okay? David Brenner, in a book called Surrender to Love, that I've started reading, says, in spite of the message of Western culture, the messages of Western culture, culture personal fulfillment lies in connection, relationship, not autonomy. I realize some people don't have any autonomy, and they need it. But if you had all the autonomy in the world and you're still a person committed to self-assertion and self and all of its expressions and not surrender, you're not going to have much for very long. So since, since God's world is an upside-down world where power is weakness <coughs> excuse me, and weakness is power, the real question is how do you and I relate to God? And I want to talk about that for a couple of minutes and then we'll, we'll close up the lesson. So, this is really the key variable in, in how you relate to other people. What kind of relationships, interactions you have with other people, whether or not you're willing to surrender or not, or, or you feel this compulsion to, uh, to assert yourself and your will and your needs, that is a function of how you relate to God. Let me explain what I mean. So I want, I want to do a thought experiment with you. <clears throat> in your mind's eye, you can close your eyes and do this and say, um, if you want to, but you don't have to. In your mind's eye, I want you to picture God looking down on you, you individually. All right, so Daniel, God's looking down on Daniel. Um, he's looking down on Thomas. He's looking down on Stephen. Picture what God sees 
when he looks down on you? Does God see you in your mind's eye with disappointment? Is that what he feels when he looks at you? Does, is, it, is it disgust and anger because you're a sinner? In other words, is God, do you picture God being preoccupied with, with your failures? Or do you see God looking down on you with affection, with love, with a desire to be with you? He's, yes, you're a sinner, but he's preoccupied not with your failures, but with how much you mean to him. He loved you before time began. He created you because of love. And he has in store for you, when he looks out to your future, to your trajectory into eternity, things that, that, that he wants to give you that are, are, are the kingdom of God. You're an heir to the kingdom. You're his beloved heir. And so he loves you. Yes, you mess up. And yes, that, that you know, discourages him for you. But he loves you. Which of those is it? And I want to say how you answer those kind of questions goes a long way to determining how you relate to God. And then, by virtue of that, how you relate to other people. If you think that God mainly sees your shortcomings when he looks at you, that's the main thing he sees. It's a list of shortcomings. Then your relationship with God is probably going to be performance-based. And this kind of gets back to Joseph's uh, Lord's Supper talk a minute ago. It's your, your relationship with God, you basically see is I need to perform right. I need to step up my game. Because he sees me as having an insufficient game. And so you'll always be trying to earn his approval. That'll be your basic, fundamental kind of thought about you and God, is i got to earn. Any obedience that you offer to God will be, it'll be based on fear, not gratitude and love. And adoration, it'll be based on fear. And that's interesting if that's the case because our, our mantra for the year, we love because he first loved us, follows what verse? God is love. If we're going to be God's people, we love. Well, guess what? There's no fear. No fear in love. It's the opposite. Love casts out fear because fear is it's fixated on punishment. You're thinking God's just sort of, you know, he's this cop waiting to catch you. He's got his radar gun. He just can't wait. He's got a quota. Right? Or he's this, this big cat, this predator who's just in the forest alongside the trail waiting to pounce. He's cocked and ready, you know, just twitching, itching to get you. A whole lot of folks think of God that way. And they usually do it in the name of, well, we've got to be holy. Oh, boy. We've got to hate sin. Let me tell you one of the worst sins, because it's so insidious, is the sin of self-righteousness that thinks this way will work. That's, that's horrible, because it insulates you against the real solution, which is the grace of God. And so, folks, what we really need, if we're going to surrender to God, is to, we need to feel relaxed somewhat in His presence. How can you surrender to somebody that you don't trust, that you fear? You're not going to be relaxed in their presence. You can't let go in God's presence unless you feel safe enough to do so. If you think God is basically fixated, obsessing on your shortcomings, just itching to throw the book at you, then you're not going to surrender. You may obey out of fear, but it's not the kind of obedience God's looking for anyway. So what we need, folks, is confidence in God's love for us. We need to really grasp, really get that He loves us. And that's the secret to surrender. And this is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. How is it that he can say, I have been crucified with Christ. I, my life now is lived as a, as a crucifixion. I'm giving away myself for everybody else. Why? 
Because the Son of God, he says, loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what we all need. Think of who's writing these words. Paul, Paul the Apostle, who used to be Saul of Tarsus. What was he doing when God appeared to him, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus? He's going to basically catch some more Christians, maybe murder some more of them. He's already presided over the murder of Stephen, a disciple of God, disciple of Jesus, and he's headed to do more of that. In the name of God. <laughs> that guy wrote this. Isn't that interesting? He loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says. And I was a murderer. Do you believe God loves you? Sure, he, he, he's discouraged by our sin, mainly because it's not good for us. It's not as fun as its marketing department suggests, ultimately. It destroys our relationships. It destroys us. We, we don't become everything he wants us to be because he's a loving father. But Paul asks us all. He prays for the Ephesians and thereby prays for all Christians that we might be able to comprehend and to know, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's, he's praying for a, a kind of contradiction in terms. The love of God, the love of Christ, you'll never grasp it. It surpasses knowledge. It's incomprehensible. So let me tell you what I'm praying for you, Ephesians. I'm praying that you can comprehend it. <laughs> I want you to comprehend the incomprehensible. I want you to know the unknowable. What's the key to that riddle? Christ dwelling in your hearts. What Jesus did on the cross, really just taking up residence in your heart, filling every nook and cranny, and flowing out, and, and, and coming to redefine you, transform you, to see that surrender is actually the key to everything. Picture Jesus in Gethsemane, kneeling down away from the disciples. His death is imminent. He's there alone, obviously anxious. I don't want to cross over into being irreverent, but it sounds like he's afraid or worried. He's in pain, emotionally anguished. Sweating like drops of blood, we read, you know. And, and look at his prayer. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup, the cup of his passion, the cup of suffering from me. And yet, because he loves you and me so much and has from all eternity before you were even born, he says, Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Picture him in hanging on the cross, saying these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. The Jews had quoted Psalm 22 for centuries. And when they would say, God, why, why have you forsaken me? And the psalm ends with how you know, God comes to the rescue. They all got rescue, at least a lot of them did, not Jesus. Those words just hang out there because he's bearing the sins of you and me. And that's some kind of love. So, I think all of us want things that are basic to being human. We want meaning. We want fulfillment. We want real relationships. You know, we want to, we want to, to be known and, and loved anyway. 
right? Who doesn't want that? We're wired for that. It's a longing that's basic to our makeup. We want to be free from anxiety and stress and strife and injustice. But the answer is surrender. It's the opposite of what many people think. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the, the Son of God who did that, who surrendered by loving me and giving himself up for me. Thanks for your attention today. If we can help you uh, begin the path to surrender in the waters of baptism today, we're, help, we're, we're standing ready to do that, maybe study with you, but let's all commit more fully to this cruciform life that is a life of surrender while we stand and sing.